And right now, what we're working through throughout the year, if you're new, but if also like you've just been kind of reintegrating back, is we're working through some of the core values of Lifehouse. Now, core values, you know, you don't just make up core values in the church, right? You got to ground them in scripture and what God has said. Um, and we let that inform the way we be and we do church. So I want to tell you guys a little bit of a story. Um, and basically, I want you guys, let's, let's, let's take about a minute here. If you were to kind of like make a really, really, really concise statement about your belief in Christ or Christianity, like if you could just share something with one person who's a non-believer, how would you boil Christianity down? Like, what would you say? Like, you don't have much time. You have maybe like, I don't know, like one minute, right? What would you say? So why don't we take like 20 seconds and think about that? I know it's hard. But there's a lot to Christianity. But like, what would you say to an unbeliever, unbeliever that makes the Christian world you stick out? And yeah, I'll leave you with that. So does anyone want to share what they came up with? No? Well, I'm basically tell, tell the person that um, they were dead. Mm. Yes, but you know their life has been paid for by Jesus Christ dying. Mm. So, yes, that's what I would say is, is the purpose of the gospel. Yeah. I love it. Into that realization. And then um, giving Christ what what's, um, you owe him, which is your life, because um, your own life has been paid for by Christ. Basically. Amen. Good gospel. I love that. That's great. Like if you had to leave someone with something. So this is what me and my friends back like four or five years ago, Emily was part of this. We were at a bar because <laughs> this is what you do. You go to a bar and you have like really advanced theological discussions about like, what could I leave my friends with if like I had to give them like, how do I know that the Christian worldview is distinct? So for any of you guys that have walked with me for a while, you know that my brain works in models. So I had this really, really great model that I, that I really like. It's not as much as gospel-oriented, but I think it articulates a lot of Christianity. So I have like three, three things about the Christian things, the Christian worldview. I'm like, we believe that Jesus is divine, that he's not just man. He is God. That's what separates us from other worldviews. So Christ's divinity. Number two, Christ's exclusivity. He is the way the truth, the life. There is no other. He's exclusive. And third is Christ is sufficient. It's not by my works. It's not Christ plus my works. It's Christ all in all. And I thought that was a pretty good model. I think that that's a pretty good one to, to tell someone if you were to try to articulate the Christian worldview to, to an unbeliever. Um, Josh, who uh, was the associate pastor here for a bit, he said, that's good. You could probably do a little bit better. You can boil it down even, even more concise. And he said, Jesus is Lord. Like, I struggled with that because I like precision. But I'm like, Jesus is Lord. But the more I think about it, the more I think he won that debate. And the more I think that you can actually boil a lot of Christianity to that one statement. So the core value that I'll be sharing with you guys, I'm just going to read it. Um, the core value that Lifehouse has that I, I will be preaching on today is this. We recognize that everything in heaven and earth was created through Jesus for Jesus. He's the head of the church and everything he has supremacy. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Our power and authority comes from him. Do you guys see the divinity language there? Okay, it's not done. Being connected to Jesus is the only way we are able to live in God's purposes and destiny for us. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing of eternal value. We want to obey Jesus out of a response to God's love for us. There's an exclusivity clause there too. It is our passion to gain a greater revelation of Jesus and reflect that to the world around us. Our confidence and contentment come from knowing and being with Jesus. Sufficiency, it's all there. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus builds the church and he has commissioned the church to advance God's kingdom by going and making disciples. But what's wrapped up in this whole core value is Jesus's centrality. Jesus is Lord over all, right? So where do we get this core value from? Like I said, Lifehouse didn't just make it up. In fact, I think that they did a really good job of just fleshing out what was already in Scripture. So today, our passage is going to be Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Um, and I'm just going to read it. And we're going to read eight verses. We're going to break it up and we're going to go through it in chunks. Okay? So I'm going to read off the New International Version, NIV. The sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you, that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Do you see how that a lot of that is li literally maps very closely to that core value? Like I said, we don't get core values in a vacuum. We build them on scripture and ground them in scripture and God's word. So let's work through this. If you were to read the passage from 15 to 23, you could actually break it down into three chunks, right? 15 to 17 is language about understanding the identity of Jesus, right? That's where you get the language. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. All things hold together. You get a sense of Jesus' identity and his power. So we'll, we'll go through that. Um, second, second chunk, 18 to 21, you understand his purposes. And in the third chunk is 21 to 23, where we understand our identity in him. So we're going to go through that one by one. So 15 to 17, I'm going to read it again because I think it's very, very hard hard to really articulate this and, and have this right in our heads. And I don't think we'll ever, honestly, get it right in our heads until we meet, we meet Jesus again. But I'm going to read 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Do you guys know what a superlative is? 
Like this is like a superlative is like good. Superlative of good is better. Superlative of better is best, right? This, these verses, they're all superlatives. Like all things, invisible, visible, dominions, power, through him, for him. Like this is like the superlatives of superlatives. So when we think about power, right, we think of it kind of like in very humanistic terms. We think of it as force, right? We think of it as violence a lot of the time. But like this power is full of force and it's not safe either, but it's also all-encompassing, right? I don't know if we can fully grasp that, but one of the things I want to point your attention to is, do you guys know the word dominion? Yeah, dominion. Um, there's also the Greek for it, which is called, I'm going to butcher this because my Greek is not very good, but I played it on Google, and this is the way it sounds. Kyriotes. That's what dominion is. And it means lordship, sovereignty, and control over territory. Right? So when you read this image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, for all, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible. Um, there's dominion language all over there. Whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, some of the translation use dominion. Right? There's that word kyriotis there, meaning lordship and sovereignty. So when we think of sovereignty and control over territory, my brain at least goes into the intuitive, right? You think of land, you think of water, you think of resources. There's a thing Canada's kind of sort of involved in about Arctic sovereignty. Who owns the Arctic Ocean? Is it Canada? Is it Russia? Is it America? Right? They're fighting over lordship and control over that. You can also, your brain can also go towards colonial history, right? Who is under whose jurisdiction? Who gets to judge? Who gets to rule? But really, when you break it down, who is under whose lordship? Right? And these verses, everything, everything submits to Jesus. Everything. And the, the not intuitive, right? I just talked about the visible. Let's talk about the invisible. And we can spiritualize this. We can say, okay, like there's a natural realm and then there's a spiritual realm. Jesus is Lord over both. Right? But let's also make the spiritual really practical. What, what territories are invisible? I just talked about visible territories. Let's start with this. What are invisible territories? What about your time? What about your thoughts? What about your priorities? What about your imagination? Your dreams? Your hopes? Your identity? Jesus has dominion over that too. Right? So the question then is not, um, is Jesus Lord? We know the answer to that. These verses make it clear, right? The question is, are we in agreement with that? Do we fully understand what that means? Another thing about the word dominion, so I just told you guys what it is in Greek, in Latin. Do you guys watch The Chosen? Anyone ever watch an episode of The Chosen? Do you know when, like, Matthew calls a Roman Dominus? Like, yes, Dominus. You know what Dominus is? Same Latin word as dominion. It means Lord. <laughs> so when we talk about dominion and what, what Matthew is saying to the Roman soldiers, like, okay, yeah, you guys have jurisdiction over Israel right now. You're Lord over us. And he's not happy about it. I don't think the Israelites are happy about it. But that's where that word comes from. So that's Jesus's identity, right? We don't change that. That's basically immutable, right? Like what we feel about Jesus 
doesn't actually change who Jesus is. He is Lord of all. He is God, full deity, everything created through him, for him. Let's move to 1821. So then, if we understand who Jesus is, we need to also kind of understand where is he going? What are his purposes? So let's read 18 to 21. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn, more identity, identity language, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And verse 20 is where you're going to get it. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. His purpose is reconciliation, right? So when we think about the Israelites, right, and the, and, and the covenant they were given, and the Messiah they were promised, they have been waiting. They've been waiting for who? Jesus, right? And what is Jesus's mission? Is reconciliation, bringing all things back to where they belong, right? We who strayed far from God can be reconciled, re reconciled to God through Jesus, so here's the, here's the thing, though, like in, in, in the context, and I'm not sure I fully grasp this either, and I, I preach this message to myself before I preach it to, to, to anyone. Do you guys know what protagonist syndrome is? Josh, Josh does a really good job of articulating protagonist syndrome. So protagonist syndrome in North America is very prevalent. I suffer from it. We probably all suffer from it to some degree. It's this idea that we believe we're the main character. Right? Like, and you hear this language a lot in self-help books. Not that I'm necessarily against self-help books. But you hear this language a lot. Uh, it's, it's, it's a function of the individualism in our culture. Right? Where you think you're, everything is riding on you. You got to make the best out of your career. You got to get the best education. You got to make the most out of the resources you're given. You're the protagonist. It's your job. Right? But if you were to read these verses, well, at this point, six verses, from 15 to 21, it's pretty clear that we're not the main character. <laughs> it's, it's pretty clear that like there's this whole cosmic narrative that's going on that was before we were born, that was already going on, and we're partaking in it. Which is what, which is why I find what Wayne just shared about like there's this whole narrative, and one day God is gonna bring everything to Himself, and He's gonna play it, and we're all gonna see what He was doing, and we're gonna be like, oh. That's why that happened in my life, because it fed to that part of the story, which you were doing to bring all things to yourself. Now, I didn't share that with Wayne, but like he said it, so he could have basically preached a sermon, which is really encouraging. But yeah, but do we get that? Do we get that, like, even though we're not the main character, that doesn't mean that your life is meaningless, right? You're part of this great overarching cosmic narrative. This community is a small one. Sometimes it's hard to gauge the impact of something, right? Like you think, when we think of impact, we think, oh yeah, big congregation, donating lots of money, moving the government, impact, yes. But until the story is fully told, you don't know the size of the impact here. It's very encouraging what Wayne had to share. I really take that to heart. So we can also bring this part back to the Lifehouse core value. Remember, in the Lifehouse core value, it says being connected to Jesus is the only way we are able to live in God's purposes and destiny for us. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing of eternal value. We want to obey Jesus out of our response to God's love for us. Now, this is very strong language. Like, think about this. Being connected to Jesus is the only way. Apart from Jesus, we can do 
nothing of eternal value. I'm going to make it even more blunt. There's actually no objective purpose outside of Jesus. I think Jesus is the most real thing, real person. Everything is real in Jesus. And everything outside of Jesus is just made up and subject, subjective. They're just preferences. But really, the greater reality is Jesus. And we're just living in his creation. And we're living for him and for his pleasure. Now, third chunk. Let's work through 21 to 23 which is identity language, but it's no longer about the identity of Jesus. This is now pointing towards our identity in Christ. Let's read it together, 21 to 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is a gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So let's break it down. Who are we? Because this language shifts really quick from focusing on Jesus, his purposes, and it shifts it back to us. Right? First part of our, what would you get from these verses? Like if you just read them. There's two segments about our identity. There's the once- who were we once? And then there's the now, right? Once is really important because if we, if we don't add the once, we would forget where we came from, right? So who were we once? We were alienated from God. That's who we once were. Who are you now, right? You're reconciled by Christ through death and presented as holy without blemish. And you're free from accusation. So... Anthony, that's what you were getting at. This is the gospel. This is how you would break it down, right? This is really important because our identity matters a lot once we understand who Christ is. I don't think we can impress upon each other and ourselves how much we are loved, right? Like when you think about the once part, like if you were to just neglect the once part, you would have no concept of grace. You wouldn't because you would just be like, well, yeah, I know I'm loved. But what you didn't know is that once you were separated from God, and now you are brought back. Now, we may all respond differently to that love. We may all pursue different ministries. You might be equipped to do different work for God's kingdom, but be in different seasons in our faith journey. But fundamentally, what, all, what holds all believers' identity together is that we're rooted in that love that God has articulated by God's sacrifice in Christ. Like That is the thing that makes us all, that's the thing we have in common as believers, is that we are all loved. And that's a fundamental part of our identity. We can't escape from it. So if you guys ever spend a little bit of time with like unbelievers or you're doing evangelistic ministry, right? And it goes back to the question that, that, that I mentioned a while ago. I think one of the things that you, you get often as an objection or some derivative of this, there's something called the problem of theodicy. And it, it's really hard for people to wrap their minds around like God's love because of broken versions of love, right? Like we get a lot of our um, notions of love from our parents, from our friends, from society, right? And so when you talk about God's love, there's a break somewhere in the communication because people are extrapolating from their own experiences, right? So, or you get some form of this. Well, it's called the problem of theodicy or the problem of evil and suffering. If God really loves so much, 
why this? Like, look at it. It's, there, there's lots of pain. There's lots of suffering. There's lots of violence. If God is an all-loving being, how, how do you explain that, right? And it's a very hard problem. It's honestly a very hard existential problem. I'm not going to solve it today. But um, the most reassuring thing about the Christian worldview, about the Christian confession, about the version of love that we believe is this. Can the world know true unconditional love if the capacity to do wrong didn't exist? How would you know? How would you know that you were loved if you always did the right thing? If you never did the wrong thing? You can conceptualize unconditional love. You'd be like, oh yeah, I think God loves me. I never do anything wrong, so I, don't, I never really know if it's unconditional. Um, but yeah, and I truly think that the only world in which unconditional love is possible is the same kind of world where suffering is possible, right? You would have to realize it. You can't just conceptualize unconditional love. You would have to realize it, and that's the kind of love that we, we get um, in Christ. So the beauty of our identity in Christ is that we know we have done wrong, as you mentioned. We know that we have the capability of doing wrong and falling short, and we have fallen short. But that is also how we know that God's love for us in Christ is so encompassing and that he was willing to die for that and to bring us back to him in reconcil re reconciliation. So I'm going to wrap this up. I know it's a short message, but in closing, you can actually group a lot of the very hard questions in life into four categories. Um, Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And I'm going to repeat that again. Origin, where do I come from? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, how am I to be or behave? And destiny, where am I going? Right? The answer is Jesus, 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 Jesus. You were created through Jesus. That is your or origin. You were created for Jesus. That is your meaning. You, you should follow Jesus. That is your morality. And destiny, your destiny is to be with Jesus. That is what we believe. Jesus is central to everything. That is the core value we believe. So the answer is Jesus is truly at the center. He is inescapable. There's no dominion he doesn't rule. Our lives can only make sense with him at the center, the cornerstone, and the final destination. So I'm going to leave you guys with a question. Will we come into agreement with that? What would our lives our church, our community, our ministry, and our work look like with more Jesus in the paradigm? And I, I, I ask that question to truly find out. Like, what would it be like if we did ministry and we thought about Jesus and we didn't just do it because it was a template of the North American church to have kids ministry? What if Jesus was in the center of that, right? What, I mean, I would like, I just led worship. I would really like to think that me and Leanne had Jesus in the center in practice and had Jesus in the center when we were leading it. I would like more of that. In the preaching of the word, if we had Jesus more at the center, what would that look like? If we had Jesus when we, when we were doing finances in the church, where do we allocate all this money? Do we have Jesus at the center or is it all about like, you know, growing an institution or organization? Would it look different? I don't know. But I want to find out. Um, what would the, let's let's make it let's stretch it. Let's take it even more macro, right? What would the greater church, the local church is great, but the bigger C church all across the world, what would that look like if Jesus were truly at the center? Because I think a lot of the time we let ministry, we let 
we let like duties get in the way of actually Jesus. And before you know it, it's not Jesus you're worshiping, it's inertia. Why are you doing it? We've always done it that way. But what would it be like if we always kept him in the paradigm? I don't know. I want to find out. Okay. That's it, you guys. That's, that's what I got.